This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. We're we're kind of talking about you know Thrive JSM. You've you've been in the in the recruiting space, but uh, you know from from your own startup vantage point, what got you into recruiting? You know why was that maybe a pain point that you really wanted to to make either more efficient or try to solve? Yeah. So so really, you know, it's interesting. So we don't think of ourselves as in the recruiting space in the sense that we're not really a recruiting platform and more a job search platform. Um, and that's, I think, something that really differentiates ourselves in the sense that um, a lot of companies are about helping employers hire um, mm. and they monetize their product through the employer's needs and through what employers are looking for as like recruiting platforms or applicant tracking systems or job boards. And we're more monetizing through helping job seekers and helping them look for a job. And so how we got into it is in, like, it's a very simple story. It's like a lot of entrepreneurs and people who have an entrepreneurial itch is I met my business partner, Tristan at university. Um, we've known each other for almost a decade now nice. and we worked on some projects when we were in university um, and we worked well together. Like we weren't best friends, but we got along well and we had, very similar like work interests. And um, Tristan ended up starting a startup that got acquired when he was like 21 or 22. And um, it was, you know, acquired not for a large sum of money, but he kind of went through the process of starting, founding um, and, and, and starting a company. And we decided after graduating and working for a year, I was working at the university that a, like a large problem that we saw our peers facing was individuals being able to like look for their first job when they are leaving university and college. And a mm -hmm. lot of people struggle with their first job search. Um, and what we found was that counterintuitively is that a lot of the products in the market were about finding opportunities. So right. aggregators, rec recruiting platforms are about giving the individual more options and opportunities. And that the problem for like an entry level job seeker leaving university and college wasn't actually opportunities. Um, it wasn't uh, that there was no one hiring them. It was that individuals struggled with like figuring out how to manage their job search and look for a job and track their jobs they're applying to and show up to interviews prepared. And that so technology wasn't helping as much with like the soft skills of looking for a job. And so we built a career JSM, which was our first product, which at its very core was a job search management platform. And it helped somebody be more productive when looking for a job. Um, and it almost looked like a CRM for a job seeker in that it organized all the jobs you're applying to, helped you track them. And we sold that to universities and colleges. And we did that for about two years, three years. And then we learned about this new industry, which is called outplacement and career transition. And we heard, like we, we got contacted by, and we started talking to some national career transition firms that help people look for jobs when they've been terminated. And this is an industry I knew nothing about when we were starting the company. A lot of people don't know about it um, unless they've gone through, they've been terminated. And as part of their severance package, they receive career transition services. And we learned that, you know, this was an industry that was very not technology focused. It was more focused on like the soft skills of looking for a job. And so we evolved from selling to university and colleges to selling to uh, outplacement and career transition companies in a software as a service model. And we did that for two years and we're still doing that with career JSM. And then we launched a complementary product to that, 
about 18 months ago um, called Thrive Career Wellness Platform. And in this product, um, it was built on top of Career JSM. We actually brought a new business model to the career transition space. And what we really did is integrate a number of different services that people can, that they want during a career transition, placing emphasis on upskilling and reskilling and employers are able to deposit dollars for an employee into our platform. And then they can take those dollars on thrive and spend them on the services they want to help them find their next job. Got you. So, well, I, I think that's that's an interesting pivot because each one is kind of in a different vertical, right? Like with uh, with with JSM, it, you know, the big focus was you were selling into universities, so they like that's how you were monetizing, and then universities would then give access to students, right, who were Correct. seeking their first their first employment, and it's it's challenging too because each each one has a very different pain point. Yeah, like 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 to your point, I remember when I was in uni. It wasn't about finding finding the job. It was to your point about managing that that workflow, right? Because then you have like Glassdoor, you have uh, I don't know, like all these different search sites. Now you have LinkedIn on top of that. So it's actually not that you don't have enough platforms. It's that you have a lot of them, and there is no way to aggregate. And then you know you go to your inbox at Gmail, and if you're subscribed to those lists, you get hit with like 30 jobs a day, and it just <laughs> it gets really messy to. Yeah, it, no, for sure. And one of the funny stories we always tell, which is like a core um value add that our product added right off the bat was especially for students or people who are looking for their first job like you're looking for anything right and you're like not anything but you're applying to a high volume of jobs and it's it's much different than when you know you'd be looking for a job at the stage of the career that that we're at right now or when you're later in your career you're gonna be much more selective um right and the pain point we always heard from students is like they'd like apply to a job and then like two weeks later, they called from a hiring manager and they wouldn't even remember what they applied to. And they wouldn't like, they would be on the phone, scrambling, Sorry, I applied to this? <laughs> figure out what this job is for, what the company does. And yeah. so, like at its most simple, we would allow, like we would have that data for them. So like they would see that I applied to company X and it does Y and okay, mm-hmm. now I got it. And for sure. And, um, and that's, you know, that's the, uh, and that's really interesting. Like the, the internet flattened the job search, but then in some ways the problems change. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. And I, I know you were talking about like the, the, the transition. That, I mean, that's another difficult part, right? Because when, when, you're, when you're given a severance package, typically, do you see actually, this might be interesting because you might have the data, do you see people really utilizing, or maybe like if you looked at it before, but before you launched your product or service, right, where you made it more efficient, were people really utilizing the full resources that they were given once they were let go? So um, I think that uh, no, um, on on the on the aggregate, no, not like no outplacement company, career transition company, if they put through a hundred people, hundred people has one hundred percent utilization of all services that are offered, right? And that's like like a lot of products. And what we found is that. A lot of people, some people might utilize the services like in whole because they're a good fit for them. And, but then others, what they need to advance their career to the next step might not be offered under a typical career transition process. So for example, we hear a lot of 
So this is more popular, like you see with like the gig economy, people becoming independent consultants, people self-incorporating. That's a much more popular over the last decade than prior is, you know, if you're at a stage in your career and you want to start your own business, then like a typical career transition service might not help you in that path. And you might not be happy with the services you received. Conversely, prior to COVID, and I actually think this is going to be accelerated due to COVID, so prior to COVID, a big selling point for our, for us is, is that, you know, we've been at the start of a digital transformation in the workforce. And as a result, a lot of companies have seen specific business units, the need for them decreasing and the need for other business units increasing. So what we've been working with a lot of users is often employers are going to be giving generous severance packages to employees who are being terminated because that unit is no longer required. And that's often in a business unit that is not growing in the economy. So I'll give you an example. Um, we did work with a large client shutting down a number of call centers. Mm-hmm. Those call centers were being automated. Um, They're being outsourced. If you're a call center worker and you are let go, prior to this, unfortunately, there aren't a number of call center jobs that are hiring. So simply taking your resume in an occupation that's declining in North America and helping you with your resume and helping you with interview preparation is not going to materially advance your career like an accountant or somebody who is in a job that is still in in large demand. And so that's one of the driving reasons that a lot of large clients work with us because then we say, well, look, we can analyze the person's skill sets. We can analyze jobs they're looking to go to. And then we can actually um, suggest ways that they can improve, right? So that call center worker that's been working for a telecom company or a bank or something of that nature as a call center employee might have like 80% of the skills to transition to being a customer support agent for a software company. But they're missing, you know, some core functionality and some some core understanding of maybe the software that the software companies are using. Um, and so then we will actually suggest here's how you can upskill and reskill through one of our like five learning platforms. And this is that's a big part of it is is that you know our fundamental belief of the job search is is that no employee has the same no individual has the same career path. And, you know, traditional career transition services are very static and they're very Mm -hmm. similar for each employee. And we're trying to really drive a a different experience based on what the individual needs. How do you customize it, though? Is it based on like you integrate AI, machine learning? Like, is there that component of tech within the play? Because I think that, that, I mean, to your point, you know, off the shelf products doesn't serve people well. And I love that analogy with someone who isn't necessarily replaceable anymore, right? Like you take that call, call center example, you know, where do you transition that? And typically that individual might not understand that to begin with. So they're printing the same resume, not kind of gearing it towards something different. And they're applying to the same industries that no longer have demand for that. For sure. So we do it in a number of different ways. Like, so at the most basic, you know, we, a user uploads their resume into our platform Mm -hmm. and we then have their employment data and their, their skill data and their resume. Then the individual, um, we'll start sending recommendations to the individual based on um, skills they can augment, skills that are in demand through the APIs we have connected to like our learning platforms. 
But then third, which is where it's most important or valuable is, is that um, one is we actually do a combination of software and high touch. So every individual meets with a career coach off the bat and that career coach, it will help push them like in the direction that, you know, we think they should be going. So that's where they might say, Hey, just so you know, like your skills are relative to this industry that's hiring. So you should start going and looking at those jobs. Then when the individual starts applying to jobs or looking at jobs on our platform, we will actually identify the skills they're missing prior to the application for them to apply to that job. And then we have the, 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 um, the skills on our platform for them to upscale. So for example, just using the call center job again, or as an example, because mm-hmm. if you're that call center employee, we're giving them the recommendation through career coach, but then through email marketing that they should be applying, you know, to tech jobs for customer support. When they go to those tech jobs, then it will say, Oh, you're missing this software tool. Then we have the ability to give them that software tool through the platform. So it's, you know, we're giving, we're using semantic search, we're using some AI, we're using some high touch conversations because there's, you know, it's, it's a combination of the three, like of those three services to, to do a good service. One thing that like I, I strongly disagree with um, is like, I think AI has been overhyped over the last five years. Um, and often in the job search in the HR space, it's, it's very overhyped because, you know, people are people like people need to, you need to communicate with them. You need to be able to, um, they're emotional. Like, I'm sorry, but like just telling someone just in an email, like you should change your entire career probably isn't the right approach. And our customers especially, especially don't transitioning. Yeah. 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 And our customers don't want us to be taking that approach. Like they, they pay for us to meet with everyone individually. Right. Like they want their still to be this like human part of the human interaction on our, on, on the services we provide. Gotcha. And, and like, I, I think this is relevant for a lot of people in maybe their 20s and 30s. But, you know, in, in the next iteration of the product, when you stop, well, not necessarily stop selling to universities, but you kind of evolve that into more on the, on the B2B side. And you started going to corps like Walmart, as an example. How do you as a startup, you know, I think you're about 12 employees, if I'm not mistaken, for Thrive yeah. as an example, right? You go to a company like Walmart or like, I mean, this is a giant, essentially, and you're saying, Listen, like we, I think, you know, we think we have a service and a product that not only tailors to what you're looking for, but can add a lot of value. How do you build that credit credibility and, and get that, you know, first meeting, that first success with, with a customer like that? So, um, so this is where, um, you know, it's, uh, my approach is a little bit, so I think more counter, not counterintuitive, but for me, a lot of it is, you know, the more that we can understand our customers' problems and our customers' pain points, mm-hmm. the better that we can provide them with solutions that reflect our expertise, but then also give them a buy-in that we understand their business. And so, for example, um, if I show up at the VP of HR at a Fortune 500 company and tell them, you know, here's all the things I know, let me tell you about your business and let me tell you about how your business can be more efficient, they're just going to laugh me out the door. <laughs> like they're just going to. And so yeah. instead for us, a lot of the time it's like our sales approach and our partnership approach is to uh, basically like try to learn about our clients and what their problems are and try to get a better understanding of what they're looking for. And then once we can identify their priorities, then we can um, 
then we can meet their needs. And, you know, an example would be going back to the example of Walmart is that, you know, on their, like, on, like one of their CEOs corporate pledges now is, is that every individual that leaves their organization is more educated and further along in their career, regardless if they come into Walmart as an associate or if they're leaving as like a vice president. And, you know, that's a powerful mission statement. And that's something that we, we felt like we strongly believed in as well. And our product offered more on those services than our competitors. The second thing is, is that, and so, so that's, you know, number one, then this, this, the second thing for me as an entrepreneur, a lot of the time has been as, you know, I don't like the word pivot, like the word pivot, I think is a lazy word because it kind of implies that like you're sitting there, like just trying to find different ways to take your business. And, um, ours, it's always been a natural evolution. And, um, for me, a lot of that evolution has become about incentives. And when you understand customers incentives, you're able to monetize your product further. Going back to universities, we were naive in believing that universities cared about employment outcomes. Like that was something that made it very hard for us to monetize our product because the problem was, is that universities say they cared about our product, about employment outcomes, but like there's no one at a university gets fired if their employment outcomes go down year over year. Like there's nobody whose compensation is directly tied to like the graduating class 2020 of an entire university like no real consequence essentially exactly they care about it and they report on it through surveys and they market it too they market it you know some (laughs) schools care more about it than others like business schools care more about it than others but they then already have a lot of like face-to-face services whereas like when you understand the incentives that a lot of these employers have to making sure their employees want to they find another job then you start to like figure out how you can monetize it better. And, and that's just always been how we've evolved. But I think to do that too, you really need to understand, you know, what it, what it's like to be in the shoes of your customer. And so yeah. what, what was like, well, I mean, what was that process like for you? Was it, you know, consensus? Did you speak to them often? Like, how did you understand what their, what their, what their, I guess, deep desires were, how to incentivize them? How did that happen for you? Yeah. You know, it's, it's like anything, right? Like it's uh just listening to them and ha- understanding them and asking a lot of probing questions. Um, and like a lot of my approach when trying to like tease out new product lines or new ways to monetize our products or customers, we think there could be a good fit. And something I really suggest to like entrepreneurs to do is that you actually have the advantage that you can like hide behind that you are an entrepreneur and you can say, Hey, like I'm, I'm thinking I have this new idea. I won't really want to get your feedback on it. And I, I, I value, you know, you build relationships with people, like regardless of who your customers are and you say, Hey, you know, I've known you, like you're the vice president of X at certain companies. Like, can I get some feedback on why I think my product might be a good fit for you? And, you know, really trying to involve your customers in the buying process and in the almost like the innovation process when you're entering like a new market, you know, it's funny. Like there's some people that don't want to touch you till you've been around for two years. There's some people that want three years. There's some people that, you know, want someone else to go first. And then you are going to find buyers that are like happy being the first customer to try your product. And that's like, you're going to give them deals and you're going to comp them and you're going to like 
you know, give them a lower rate and you're going to do all these things that they deserve because they're your first customer. Um, but you're going to find those people and they're going to be caught. They're going to want to move forward with you. And uh, that's a lot of, that's about it. And like, you just can't, you have to be selective and understand which customers those will be and which won't, they won't be. And that's just through personal relationships. Yeah. And it's, it's true to the fact that like these loyal customers, even in, in downturns, like take COVID as an example, right. Being that kind of unexpected scenario that maybe hit a lot of businesses, loyal customers always want to see you win, you know, especially yeah. if you've given them value, if you've ex- executed on what they've promised. Like I remember even with Owl, um, it was a fintech startup that I worked for in Toronto, similar to what you were saying, like Industrial Alliance, Munichree, they were early customers of theirs and they took a bet because they were excited. You know, they were excited about the tech. They were happy with the solution. And I think you, you raised some really good um, items there too, in, in the sense that you're going to typically go over and beyond. And yeah. you know, certain innovative uh, corporations that know that are going to take that first bet on you because they know, one, there's kind of a price discount off the bat. You're going to go 120% because you're trying to build your book and reputation of clients, right? You want that testimonial. So kind of selfishly, if, if they really understand that, it's not taking advantage, but it's, it's kind of, you know, they're giving you something, you're giving them something. So it's like a W uh, both ways. Absolutely. As well as, yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. That's it. And then as well, like, I think the, you know, you can also play that's on other point. things. Like the, the vice president, the vice president of the director that brings in a new technology that works. Yes. Like that that's makes good. them look good. Yeah. Right. And, and we that, always talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that, that matters too. Right. And so like you can figure that stuff out pretty quickly too, because like the person who's been in their role for 10 years Mm. isn't going to make that buying decision if you're the start, right. Because they might not be in a position where they're interested in moving up. They also um, own a lot of their own existing processes, which I think is a really important thing in the sense that, um, someone's new in the role they've been there a year two years they're probably not married to how their organization's done things and this is the sort of thing where like it's a weird psychology you have to figure out when you're selling because like it's not gonna be very successful telling somebody who's responsible for finding the previous vendor that they made this like really bad decision and so you have to manage that emotionally and um, and that's why the earlier you are you have to be really a good understanding of who you're talking to and who you're segmenting from a prospect perspective and, uh, and understand all that. And then also like have some empathy for your customers. Like, I think that that's a really important thing too, is that, you know, you in a buying journey, like you're trying to push them along that buying journey, but like, they're going to want to be the ones that navigate it and you have to respect that. And, um, because they also understand the inner politics better than you do. And I think sometimes, not all startups, but sometimes you come in as like, oh, well, we have the tech and you're antiquated. You know, you're like a freaking dinosaur, you know, and I I know that there some egos sometimes play to that, even though founders don't want to, you know, attest to it. But it's true. You come in, you're saying like, look, we're going to be your saving grace. But you have to keep in mind, too, that a lot of these people also have, you know, a full day job that has very, very different moving parts. And this is kind of one piece to it. Right. Regardless of whether this is the sponsor or champion, like they want to help you and they want to see this through. But you, you know, just be a bit more mindful. So I love that point around that. For sure. And I relate it to sometimes like politics, like um, I, I follow politics a lot. I studied political science and that was my undergrad. And like, I don't like politicians who tell me I'm stupid. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like politicians who say, 
anyone who thought that this is is an idiot or and you know that, that plays well for some people it doesn't play well for people who are on the fence right and you want to convert these buyers that are on the fence and telling somebody that's on the fence about something that they were stupid about a decision they made is going to strengthen their resolve to stick that's with a good that idea. <laughs> and so you want to coach them to make a new decision but almost empower them to make a decision that's in line with what you want yeah dude a great book on this is uh, like that that legendary uh, dale carnegie book how yeah. to win friends influence people like that's what yeah. people need to read if, if you think that that that's the strategy i highly yeah. recommend you, you look at that kind of resource yeah um did you guys raise any money or was this bootstrap like how was that for you yeah so we've raised um we haven't raised capital really in a couple of years um okay. we raised a couple angel rounds um over the last uh couple like so we raised a first round in 2000 falls 2016 then another in winter 2017 started 2018 and then since then um aside from like we really haven't raised any capital funny enough we're actually um just in the process of closing around um nice. and so like a series a or like an early series a or it's not a to- total series a but more than we raised in the past we're kind Got of it. You know, I'm not going to announce anything because I'm just in the process of like signing term sheets and moving to 100%. close. But it's, uh, it's been an interesting experience raising capital in the middle of a pandemic too. So that's, uh, it's been, the last 60 days have been a complete whirlwind. What advice would you give, dude? Because I was, I was asked this recently, I was doing a webinar with a nonprofit here in Chicago and they asked me basically the question, which I loved. It was, how can entrepreneurs put themselves in a place to successfully raise capital post COVID or maybe for some startups like yours where you raised it during COVID what did you do that was you know that helped you stay on people's radar networks like what was that like for you so it's you know this is a good question and um I I think my approach would be this is that if your singular singular goal or next milestone that you believe is the most important to your business is to raise capital, you're dead. Like you're actually, you're done. Mm-hmm. And, and you are going to even have a worse time right now. Um, and that's like if even, you're desperate for cash. You mean, is that, yeah, not just if you're desperate for cash, if you like, if the only, if you're, you as an entrepreneur is waking mm-hmm. up every day and I like my, my number one priority is to raise capital. Um, and that becomes the mindset of a lot of people. And that's especially because like cap- raising capital, in my opinion, has unfortunately become a measuring stick for success for early stage companies. And, and what I'm getting at is that the reason that we're raising capital right now and the reason we'll be even well equipped to raise post is because the dr- outcomes we're driving for our customers at this time. And, and the reason that like we had... Um, and so our capital raise, like really got kickstarted because, you know, when investors went down the list, like we were one of the ones best equipped with our customer base to succeed over the next, you know, six to 12 months and our business model, um, you know, raising capital has been something I've been focusing on for the last three to four months, but it's been like something that I'm focusing on in addition to like running the business and talking to customers and, and everything of that nature. I think that raising capital is a full-time job in itself, but 
like your other full-time job is like looking after your customers and running the business and and yeah and if you lose sight of that um that's that's it but going a step further if i was going earlier stage or like companies that are probably at an earlier stage than we're at from a revenue perspective is like i would still go back to what i was saying is that you know you'll be in the best like position to raise capital if you demonstrated business growth even business flatlining like mm-hmm. through this period because if you're yeah. able to show to investors that you know even when like all hell was breaking loose your current customers stuck with you or they continued with the pilots or they did whatever then people are going to understand that you're you're well equipped for the next one and it like that's really really what it comes down to it's like a pretty simplistic answer but um that's, that's a really good one that's how we fo- we stay focused yeah especially like I, I would point out to you i don't know if you saw this but like the ebitda c with like a you know it's like earnings before interest tax amortization yep. depreciation but like coronavirus so like uh, it's basically just to show that i think investors aren't tone deaf you know if you're looking to raise capital don't be too stressed about what what your financials look like today in terms of like the past two months when this whole thing was happening, I think what they would look for is kind of pre-corona and also post. How are you yeah. coming outside of this too? What's that story? Like what's the rebound story? Um, the other thing too is like, it's probably going to shine on a lot of uh, businesses with weaknesses, right? Yeah. Like where are you most vulnerable? And if, if your revenue is sensitive because of a small blip, it's not because it's tied to an industry that just got demolished because of what's happening. I mean, in some cases, that's, that's less uh, of a hurt, hurtful impact, I would say. For sure. And I, I think the, no, no, absolutely. And um, I think investors, you know, understand this, they'll be looking for companies that have succeeded well. The other thing I would say, and it was, this was, I was giving a presentation to a global investor group this morning from one of, like one of our existing investors, but to some people they're connected with is mm-hmm. like what COVID has allowed us to do. Interestingly enough is almost like it's given us a cushion to try new things as well. So what I mean by that is um, clients have started to ask us for things we weren't doing beforehand. We actually like moved some products up on our product roadmap that we, we weren't planning on doing for a long time. Like for example, we launched a free version of our application that we previously hadn't been focusing on. Like I, I remember I have this investor pitch deck from like March that said, Hey, we're going to launch a B2C version of our app in like summer of 2021. And then we launched it in April. And, and so, but what, what COVID has given us the opportunity to do is to like experiment and, and figure things out while basically growing our core business. And previously I was probably a little bit more conservative about trying new things because we had this successful business that was growing. And now you're like, you know what, screw it. The entire world has been turned upside down. You know, our customers are dealing with this new reality let's launch some new products. Let's see what happens. And that that's been really successful for us. Mm -hmm. And it's almost given us a cushion to fail on those because in a sense, if like a B2C product didn't work, my board's not going to sit there and be like, Jeff, what were you thinking? Like, why were you spending time on that? It's like, what do you mean? It was COVID. Like unemployment was like shooting through the roof. roof. And I think that's another thing is like, you know, entrepreneurs that are resourceful and like try new things and and do those things during this period they're going to recognize that like i'm sorry if like in six months you say yeah like we didn't have much traction we tried to get some government grants and subsidies 
and those didn't come through. So we really need some capital because COVID turned our world upside down. That's not a very motivating story. And like, that's not, not what it's going to say, but that's, that might be what it sounds like. And, um, and so instead it's gotta be like, we're doing this, we're doing that. This is how we dealt with this world. And I think it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. I also think it's um, because I think you have a bit of cushion, but then also I think this is when you learn what you're made of and how you can, how you can deal with it. What did you tell when, so obviously this, this happens differently for different people, right? Like when you started fully realizing this thing was actually serious, because I think including myself, by the way, like early March, I, I didn't necessarily think of it as serious as, as I would today. And I think a lot of people fall in that camp. I'm not assuming that you, you are, but um, when you really felt this impact, what did you first tell your, your team? So, um, yeah, I would say I was somebody that didn't take it as seriously at the start as well. Um, probably, like, I was in New York City on May the 10th, or March the 10th. And, Dude, I was in Pittsburgh. Yeah, <laughs> for work. I flew, to Mar- flew, I flew to New York City to meet with an investor on March the 10th, and it was pretty much business as normal. And then, like, a week later, it was, like, locked down. And um, so for us, like, so I came back from New York City that Monday. I was there on a Monday. I came back uh, the Tuesday or whatever. And then I think on Thursday, we decided to shut our offices down. Like, that's how fast, you know, things happened. Um, And then we went remote, like, starting the next Monday. For us, a lot of it was let's take this week by week. Let's, you know, here's what we're thinking. Here's what we're hearing. Here's how we think it's going to impact the business. Um, at first we didn't really know what was going on. Like for, for us, it, it, we didn't know a lot of the answers and we were just trying to maintain constant communication with our employees about how we're managing and what we're doing. What we realized really quickly was, you know, the first almost 30 days of this is we, saw little to no activity from our corporate clients because a lot of our corporate clients and basically like, you know, moved remote, like just basically didn't do anything. Like they just shifted a lot of their work from home policies and there was no kind of business restructuring or anything going on that would require services. So funny enough, like when we realized that was happening, cause like we realized really quickly, we then that's when we decided to launch a free version of our product because we're like, mm-hmm. you know what? Let's use this time. We don't need to sit around on our hands and, and wait for stuff to happen. Then by, by start of April or mid-April, then we started to like get a lot more of our corporate activity. And it became obvious that our business was not in a very vulnerable spot based on where we're at with COVID. So honestly, from that, it was just a lot of communication. The second thing I would say is that for me personally, like I have a fairly like loud, large personality, a presence in the office. And so I, I don't like feel the need to chat one-on-one with every employee every day or every week because like I naturally chat with them. Like I, I talk to everyone and then going remote, um, I realized like I needed to start to change my management style to, um, to deal with to this. Accommodate. So that resulted in like us switching our things, like doing one-on-one meetings with employees at a higher frequency than we just to check in, just to check in and just to ask people how they're doing, how they're managing with this because everybody is dealing with it differently. And Mm. so increasing and changing our communication. But other than that, 
you know, it's been simple, straightforward, day by day. I would say that the one thing is, is like now is not the time for strategy and like business planning and all that stuff. Because if anyone tells you they know where the world's going to be in six months, they're full of shit. And, know, and you have no idea. So it's just like focus on what's in front of you and, and execute. Execution. Uh, well, just to wrap this up, and I love that last part, man, because it's so true. And, and you can get you can get caught, right? Because you have that time window now. So as a business, and I, I almost got caught in this too. I was like, should I be paying more attention to strategy or reassessing that? Then I was like, you know what? Screw it, man. I know what I have to do. Certain things are going to change slightly. Like to your point, the meetings for, for you. Um, for others, it might mean going a bit more virtual. But now is the time to actually just business as usual. Um, keep executing, you know, make different pivots in kind of small increments and just see how this plays out because for you to spend hours like redesigning this whole thing yeah i mean you don't you don't know where it's, where it's going to head in a month from now um exactly. and so what, what advice would you give from you know your your experience co-founding these these two startups you know growing them through a pretty turbulent time what advice lessons maybe experiences can you share for someone in their 20s 30s who aspire to to start a venture yeah so um I'd say, you know, the, the main one is, um, this is, this is obvious or, but, uh, it's something I even struggled with a lot whenever I was younger is, um, you know, folk, like you like focus on what you can control. Like at, at, at the end of the day, um, stressing about what you can't control is not going to help you at all. And it's very challenging nowadays in today's social media environment. Um, you know, we've got some political leaders making bad decisions. You can really end up stressed and focusing on things that you can't control. Um, and then, like, I think that uh, so the second thing, and this is not as much, not as relevant to, but this is more general advice for any entrepreneur starting, is that you need to trust your own intuition and you need to like trust your own understanding of the product and the market and what you're doing and like like rely on those instincts. What I found early on as a business leader is that I think I was taking too much advice from too many people and I was you know whether it was through these startup accelerators or like networking wanting to get feedback from a number of people that were very smart people but really quickly aren't as well connected to the industry that you are, that you're focusing on. And as a result, you can get a lot of competing advice. Um, you can go online and read like inspirational quotes from like Joe Schmo entrepreneurs that are just talking all the time about business advice and it can become distracting. And I think like, you know, you, if you understand the business and the problem that you're trying to solve, you're going to have the best idea on how to do it. And if you don't, you probably shouldn't be starting a business in that region, in that area. And that's going to hold you back from probably executing and bringing a unique insight. Um, that the final thing is, is that, you know, people start, I think people start businesses, the people that start businesses that are really successful do so because they understand something about that market that other people don't understand. And they have a unique perspective on that market but that doesn't mean their first idea is the best one. And we understood stuff about what the problem job seekers faced, but we were very flexible in how we adapted based on what we learned. And so you just have to keep adapting.
based on what you, what you know about that market. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.